I'm Becky and I'm Sam and we're from the band Tongue and this is our Dead Club podcast. Um, Tongue is a band made up of me and Sam and also Mike, Phil, Ashley and Martin. And what's Dead Club Sam? Dead Club is not only the name of this podcast but it's also the name of our new album and we wrote the songs after quite a long period of research whereby we interviewed people, read books, uh, and really immersed ourselves in the subject, which is a totally new way of working for us. You know, this is essentially a a concept album and it was quite exciting to work this way and it gave, gave us a lot of ideas. So we recorded all these interviews with all these amazing, interesting people and we decided to make a podcast out of it because we wanted people to hear these interviews and... You know, we started working on this project long before COVID-19 and subsequently we are recording some of this on Zoom now. Um, But also it's important to note that, I think, because it feels like these conversations are more important than ever. This episode is an interview with Max Porter. Now, Max Porter is an amazing British writer and he wrote this book, well, he's written this book called Lanny, which is amazing, and another book called Grief is a Thing with Feathers. Grief is the thing with feathers, which um, we kind of passed around us as a band and we all really loved it. And in some ways, it was the start of Dead Club. Yeah, through a sort of random occurrence, uh, I was lucky to meet Max and I was a big fan already of his, his writing and met up and we got talking and... You know, it became clear there was some common ground which might be interesting to talk about for this project. Okay, so here's Max and Sam when they met last year in my living room. Max Porter, hello. Hi, Sam. It's really nice to speak to you. And we're very grateful for you taking part in this project. Can I just recap a little bit what we're doing? So I'm I'm the member of a band called Tongue and we decided that our next album is going to be inspired by the subject of death and our culture's relationship to death. And I wanted to do, kind of go through a period of research before we started the actual writing and recording so that it can be kind of informed by a wider sort of set of ideas than just our own. Our own. And one big part of that was your book, Grief is the Thing with Feathers. So I... I discovered your book in a in a bookshop not long after it came out. I think I was attracted to the the title and and this sort of picture of a scrawled picture of a crow that was on the cover and I, I picked it up and of course lots of people had said it was this really wonderful book, so I thought I should read this and I did and I found it really inspiring and it actually got passed around the band and we all we were all quite affected by this. So when we started this project we thought it would be exciting to approach you and ask if you would consider writing something which could be I guess a kind of lift-off point for the project something to take some creative inspiration from and just kind of set things moving with a sort of interesting tone and and you've done that you've written a, a two-part story um, and it's it's wonderful we love it we wondered could you just tell us a little bit about it 
Yeah, well, I thanks for your kind words. I um, found after the book came out, it was written in quite a private space and the formal shape it took was a response to a, a kind of struggle to find an appropriate form for the, the stories, mainly for the story of the children, um, but mainly for me over the years, thinking about ways of writing about the sibling relationship and the absence of a parent, but also things that kind of clung to that as I grew old, things like poetic obsession and, as you said, the way that death is spoken of in our culture and various things that upset me and angered me about that. Um, I needed to find a form that could allow me to address them without what I felt to be this very baggy, cliched prose about death. So I was kind of writing against a lot of work that I'd read, even work I'd greatly admired as being very exacting or very brilliant. I also felt was kind of guilty of this using, reaching for philosophical language or cliches or familiar formulations of loss. So um, then I kind of became busy with that book. It took off in a way I hadn't expected and it was adapted for the stage and stuff, which forced me to kind of keep on thinking about these things, even though I felt brutally that I was a bit done with it. Yeah. Um, or, or that I didn't want to become a sort of spokesperson for it. And, and what I found sort of privately thinking was actually I've, I've, I've hardened to an almost unpleasant degree about grief and the grief culture. So, for yeah. example, I wouldn't want to go to an event to hear different writers talking about mourning and I wouldn't want to listen to a podcast yeah. <laughs> talking about his book. I sort of have this come on everyone dies attitude which is which has solidified over the last few years. It to 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 an extent that I'm I, I almost don't recognise myself anymore as a person that was more or less formed by the sort of sentimental instinct or, or the desire to examine the sentimental instinct in me as regards my childhood and the death of my dad. It was sort of everything. Everything grew from it. All my yeah. creativity certainly grew from it. Um, so I wondered whether I'd kind of broken myself with grief as this thing with feathers mm. or I'd gone public with something that shouldn't have gone public and I'd become a kind of receptacle. Because for two or three years of my life, I would sit at a table with a queue of people queuing up to tell me their sad stories. And yeah. I wondered whether I had kind of overdosed on it. Mm. Um but also I recognise that the same person that wrote Grief is a Thing with Feathers is is the same person now that has this sense of like the, the language of uh, the kind of watered-down language of Christianity as regards passing and the movement of souls and all this. I, I still hate that as much as Crow hates that. Yeah. And I'm as suspicious of that. And there's a reason I wrote the Crow character is because he thinks we're all kind of kidding ourselves in the way we talk about death. So anyway, then you got in touch and I was, of course unhesitatingly keen to work with you um you all and um but then I thought about it and I thought I don't um what what is my interest currently in this subject Mm. and what's happened is I think that if 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 my interest has developed in any way since I wrote that book it is in it's backwards not forwards or sideways yeah my interest writing that book was in the lateral relationship with with siblings and stuff and Crow's job was to kind of um, bring the past. And, and in my, my second novel, and in my thinking at the moment, and the writing of this piece, is very much more about how can we allow the past to inform and haunt our, our present. Yeah. Um, and what place might a kind of consideration of how people have died in the past impact the way we are with someone that's dying now, or the way we treat things like, the way we think about, palliative care really the caring for the dying and even our vocabularies because I think we are in the present really problematically 
self-interested and self-obsessed we don't mourn well as a society and i always want that's why i love ghost stories because they're at least opening the door mm. i think especially this the, the way that a civilization always tells itself its medicine and its science are the end of the line all the knowledge has been gathered and then even 10 15 years down the line it's laughable that we thought that yeah and so that kind of tyranny of information really the kind of lie of of supremacy of the present um i want to interrupt so with your with this piece i started with writing something quite gentle and domestic maybe we will talk about that how the domestic seems to me a corrective to the kind of otherworldliness of death as if we place it in the build you know the martian idea that you place it in the white room mm. and seal it off from the rest of life i hate that i want yeah. death in the classroom i want it in the playground i want it in the bedroom you know it's part of life there's a lovely sort of mon- mundanity to, to that first part of the story so. yeah so yeah. i wanted that and i wanted it to be affectionate in that way and also because you'd got in touch and i know your music and your lyrics over the year i felt it would be important to have a sense of humor in there uh, and a sort of lightness of touch and almost a kind of self-mocking instinct at work in there mm. whilst also having a total emotional sincerity i felt that was the sort of tongue trademark if you like yeah. um and then and then that didn't satisfy and i'd sent it to you and you you'd been happy with that piece or you told me you politely said you were happy with that piece and then i went away and i started to think that's only one panel and isn't everything much more interesting when you have uh, a counterpoint or a, or an opposing force or an energy that, that can be read against it? So I thought, what would be the flip side of that panel? So I went back and I wrote a, a bog body. Mm. And so now you've got a, a contemporary granddad figure dying, surrounded by his family and kind of the, the as you say, the mundane, everyday stuff of, of what happens when one of you is, is leaving. And, and the kind of hassles and awkwardnesses of that. And awkwardness is key to it for me. Um, and on the flip side of that, something more archaeological, where I'm trying to kind of link the way we live now and the way we lived then, and the fact we're all just bodies and we're all turning back into mud and soil. Yeah, there's, there's a greater sense of the sort of long arc of time in that second part, and uh, which I, f- I found quite magical. Um, but the two, the two together work wonderfully and have really sort of, well, they've got a... Uh, our imaginations sort of firing up. Oh, good. It's, to me, it's like an image. It's an Im- it's a it's a way of seeing. And and it's why writing for me should always aim for the condition of the visual arts, or it should aim for the exactitude of poetry, or whatever, or the abstract power of poetry. But also, it should aim for the kind of compositional um, revelations of the mm. visual arts. So you know, when you look at a painting for a very long time, or an image, for, or a landscape, or a view, or even your child, or whatever, mm. for a long, long period of time. Yeah your understanding of it in those first 30 seconds comes to seem very shallow. As shallow as a spoon. After 10 minutes of looking. And then after 20 minutes of looking. And the more you look, the more you learn about yourself and the world. Mm. And, and so I thought, if I, if I have... Um, you know, like the idea, which I borrowed from a brilliant book by Julia Blackburn called Time Song, where she's describing these footprints that were found on a beach um in norfolk and they're the oldest footprints eight thousand years old i think they've been found of human you know the oldest trace of human and it's just luck that they were exposed by that tide that rubbed away that layer of silt or sand or whatever it is and and she describes the kind of the the layering of time over that so there would have been you know a crane's foot above that and then maybe a thousand years later a deer's foot and then maybe a thousand years later whatever a car park or Mm. you know a toy car buried in the sand and that that what what might one do for oneself emotionally and intellectually and spiritually 
if one was better able to consider those layers yeah. all the time, clinging to us, walking around a city, you know, like, you know, when you go to Rome or somewhere and you're like, God, history's just piled up on top of itself. You know, yeah. you've got the Gothic and you go, but that, that's, that's how it is all the time. And I think bringing that mentality or that way of seeing into our everyday communication or the way we might deal with a carer or a stranger or a, the idea of otherness and death as a state of otherness. I yeah. think it need, we need to sort of, I'm all about the possibility of simultaneously something quite soaring, something quite ambitious in that regard. Yeah. And but married to something really quite, um, as you say, banal or mm. everyday. When you sort of mix all these ideas, sort of the everyday, the sort of, you know, the deep time, you know, um, difficult things, wonderful things, magical, awful, like, why, when all those things get mixed together, do I find myself feeling comforted, do you think? Um, like, if I could sort of, for example, talk about the character of Crow, you know, like, yeah. I, 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 as a person, I have these two sides of my brain, and one is very rational, you know, I'm the guy who reads the Richard Dawkins and the AC Grayling, and, uh, but, and then the other side is, I'm very, part of me, even though I, I can't believe anything that, I haven't experienced or somehow some has, has very, very accurately been described to me in a way that thinks, okay, that's probably true. I, I can't believe the sort of, um, some, there are some of these religious ideas that are spiritual ideas that exist. And these two parts of my brain battle with each other, you know, without any real success. But somewhere in the middle, there's this space, which when I read your book, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, Crow like jumped into this space. And I, I really recognize this kind of, um, sort of beautiful, terrible, confusing, un impossible to pin down kind of character and and headspace. And I mean, what what's going on there? Do you think? I don't know. I mean, there must be an answer to do with sides of the brain and stuff. There must be. I mean, I'm mm, okay, sure yeah. if you ask someone from a different uh, walk of life, they'd have a, a maybe a scientifically charged answer for mm. you. I think that the. the um, I think that ambiguity is a very powerful force in art um, yeah. and that what you're reckoning with in that book, what that impact is for you is not what anything I've said or anything particularly that Crow has done, it's, it's what Crow isn't doing, it's, it's the space left for you to mm. move into. Yeah. Um, and I think if like, and it's, and it's an increasingly urgent act for me as capitalism uh, or, or like the death of capitalism maybe like forces us to behave in, in, in ever more sort of siloed ways and, and the kind of odd uncanny blending or merging of things between forms or between uh, cultural establishments or, or genres or anything when you it, say siloed do you mean sort of self well keeping or? things separate so yeah. keeping the scientific work or reading you do from separate from the art or the poetry yeah. I think yeah. that what, what interesting and good things happen when in the space between those things but mm. for me always as a writer I'm basically it's not I've, I say this again and again and again and it's like a one size fits all answer because I might be talking to students about form or I might be talking to you know a fellow writer about um, you know the moral architecture of my work or, or cultural appropriation or whatever it is but for me the key is is not what a is and what b is it's what happens to the reader as collaborator when they move from a to b mm. so if a is something in grief is things feathers for example if a is something quite sentimental childlike or a, a, a fable or something um, and b is something quite scholarly quite like pointedly rigorous in terms of its literary references or something like that then i i i, I doesn't really 
matter to me how they're understood or 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 engaged with but what really is very important to me is is what i do for the reader as he moves between those things because if i over egg one or i flood one with my own politics or my own sense then i've and i've then i've interrupted that possibility of movement between the two yeah do you know what i mean so what i think is happening for you when you read a book like this is just that it, you're it's just the invitation to think it's an invitation to respond because lots of work that we come across in in the world doesn't contain that invitation it contains the exact opposite it puts like lots of novels i read for example are so full of exposition that there is no collaborative enterprise whatsoever between reader and 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 and, and that so there's no feeling involved because yeah. you're being told everything um so I, I i think maybe it's the blank space in the book that is triggering things that you've read elsewhere yeah with no regard i mean crow's the whole point about crow is he's a cultural disruptor so he's, there's he with no regard for what section of the bookshop those books belonged in or those films or albums or whatever came from he's inviting you just to just to drag into this white space all the feeling you yeah. had uh, yeah completely that and i always felt that about this book it's not your i always said this and it seemed like an affectation but i realized speaking to people like you it's not it's a genuine effect of it it's not my flat my dad's flat is your flat and it's not my sibling relationship with mm. your so that's what happens if you make them an, animated templates that you slide them on and off the stage for the viewer to fill in do the coloring in themselves yeah and i and i and i and i love that when i read other people's work that i'm being invited to to do that final bit myself yeah so that when so once you've done all the coloring in suddenly you realize you've got a fully working three-dimensional model of pain <laughs> behind you yeah it wasn't there when you were reading you were just there were just a series of prompts I've, it credits you, I hope, as a as a thinking, feeling person more than some work. Does. Okay, well, I mean, it, what everything you just said sort of makes sense to me, and actually, it makes sense in the context of some of the songs we've created over the years and my lyric writing, especially when I I do find often people respond most strongly to some of the lyrics that even I'm not quite sure what they meant you know yeah. I, I, if some comes from somewhere and it's there's a lot of ambiguity in, and I think you it, I've kind of thought well that it enables people to put their own experience onto it and maybe five different people would hear that lyric differently and maybe there's a little bit of that going on with what with that crow character and with some of your writing I hope so and what's been pleasing for me across both books is that if you load something up with a certain type of specificity I don't think you risk its universality so like the Crow can be read very much as a kind of contribution to Ted Hughes' studies, like, sort of like my little unofficial PhD on the work of Ted Hughes, and there's a lot in there, and, and it, it might bother some people. But I hope that it's so specific that out of it springs a universal opportunity for, for rec- recognising what this device is. You yeah. know? Um, same with Lanny, it's a very, very English village. Like I've, I, was, I was very, very careful to make sure that demographically and politically and economically and socially it's a credible place about an hour outside London in terms of the people that live there and the way they behave and the way they spend their money and the drugs they take and the drinks they drink and all this and yet I've speaking to people in you know Amsterdam or or you know Sweden middle of nowhere in another country when the book is in translation and the, and, and, and the dynamics between the people and the methods by which a marriage somehow explodes into a community explodes into a nation state or a little flicker of xenophobia becomes an actual racist comment which becomes an actual sentiment in the village yeah. which, but you know these things are the same everywhere but you've got to get the specifics right first i think yeah it's so i had a, to write from the heart about losing a parent if i was going to be of any use to a reader six years down the line who's reading it because their cat died yeah uh you've got i think the work the work is the, the quality of the work the, the quality of the thinking is evident in its ability to trans 
late and transmute and merge later. Yeah, I mean, that idea of um, sort of the way people are, to a degree being the way people are in a lot of different places is quite powerful to me. Having just, um, I read Lanny a while ago, but I, I, I've been um, knowing that I was going to be speaking to you. I've been listening to it again um, this week on um, like an audio book. And um, I don't want to say too much about the book because it's it's almost a thriller, Lanny. Like, I don't know how you'd feel about me saying that, but it's a, it's a very gripping, intense story that sort of twists and turns, as well as being this beautifully poetic thing. But what I will say is, is this, there is this one part of the book where you hear a lot of voices of the people in the village and in the country. And um, I really, um, I really found myself being quite upset by it. Uh, having recently gone through the election mm. and having seen how I think as a sort of it makes it sound like you ran for candidate <laughs> <laughs> yeah, having, having lost my conservative candidacy candidacy yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, that's local, under my place called Korea <laughs> yeah well they yeah um, <laughs> no more politics for me but, um, no but I really I mean I was genuinely felt upset by it because I, I around that time on social media I, I, I as a sort of left of center thinking fairly liberal person who likes to think he's quite open-minded and reads a lot I I think I'd slightly misjudged how willing to not other each other we were as a culture and I, I was a bit taken aback by the tone of the debate actually on both sides you know I have um People who I agree with essentially politically, I saw them being really, really nasty to people they disagree with, and I, it, it kind of shocked me a bit. And I, I, um, and what I've been thinking about um, is this sort of idea of kindness, um, and how it feels like we, we sort of maybe we haven't lost our way, maybe we hadn't quite found our way, and that was a bit of an illusion that we had. But um, one thing I have found interesting engaging with the subject of death and grief is that it does seem to touch a slightly different part of people it's a kind of leveler in, in a and a I mean I think we've all had that experience of um well I've had the experience of being at a funeral for example and people change a little bit you know it's like for for a couple of hours everyone sort of drops the bullshit and yeah. it feels like there's a sort of kindness that comes out in everybody and that that gives me an awful lot of hope and I, I do wonder is is there an element that I don't know if I'm over sentimentalizing this but is there a, an element a part of this discussion around death and dying that is a sort of gateway back to kindness you know well I mean it's a big question and I like it I <laughs> I, um, I I it's the best of us. I agree. I think it's the best of us. I certainly feel that mourning, as a as a prolonged or, or, or even permanent state of mind to commit to, is 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 the best of. I think it it gets good results. I think we think better about ourselves, the planet, each other, past, present, our responsibilities from the way to each other and to other non-human things in the world. I think I think grief for me is 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 like an enlightened state. Right, um, yeah, and I and I hope never to not be grieving in that regard. Because yeah. if one's not grieving for the people one has loved, then one should be grieving for the victims of the various systems and wars and um, exploitative mechanisms in this world. That means that the world is ending for someone all the time. Yeah. The world has just ended in the time we've spoken for hundreds of people in terrible circumstances. So one always should be grieving. 
As regards this country now and your campaign to become uh, <laughs> <laughs> spokesperson for hate in your area, um, I, I, I find myself profoundly disappointed. And, and my mum accuses me of a bit of self-righteousness in this regard. I find myself very, very uh, disappointed in people for the failure of kindness. Um, and I can't believe that we've allowed such rampant hypocrisy and, and um, like systematic and systemic cruelty to become the norm mm. both from our government and from our newspapers and from our institutions uh britain particularly i think partly because of our colonial past but we we have a, a complete as you say we could be the sweetest people in the world taking a tray of scones round to, to someone in need or taking them communion wafers or reading a lovely poem at their funeral whilst at the same time lapping up this unbelievable vitriolic shit that we that we direct towards someone even notionally mm. or, or, or minutely different from ourselves due to the color of the skin or where they were born and that to me is just is not only a failure of intellect but is a fucking excuse me is a terrible um abandonment of the moral compass yeah uh and I, and i and i know that human beings have always you know i'm not i'm not i'm not suggesting we've ever reached a point where where, where kindness was that i saw but it seems as you say around the death and the dying we might see our, our, our best instincts at work yeah um I, I i wish you know i wish we a friend of mine's just died and i was trying to explain to another few i didn't know this person well i hadn't seen him since school i was trying to explain to another friend of mine why i didn't want to go to the funeral I didn't want to be, I didn't know her well and I didn't feel like I should. And then I felt terribly guilty because, of course, you go to a funeral just to put your, just to be there, just to be counted, just to be, you know. And I thought, no, actually, I'm going to push back on this again. I don't, you know, my relationship with this person recently was that I sent her some poems because she'd asked and, and we had a very meaningful to me and brief conversation over text messages about poetry and her illness and the way she was fighting it. And I and I cherish that, and I'll be I'll be grateful for that my whole life, and I hope it was something good for her. I hope that I gave her even even a moment's respite from her agony, and she pondered poetry. I that that to me is paying respects mm. in to the living. I I feel it's a it's a real failure, and I do think it's something to do with kind of watered down, as I said, the sort of language of of the church and of the afterlife that, that we've allowed the life to become so cruel, and the idea of the afterlife to be so sweet. Yeah. Like why aren't we doing it now? Yeah. Why aren't we caring for one another, praising each other's best points, gently modelling and working our way around each other's faults, like both both as individuals and as communities, better when we're alive? And that, that to me, is the kind of thing that children say and the kind mm. of thing that crows say and the kind of thing that mythological figures who've been watching human life for 2,000 years would say. Yeah. It's like you still are making this basic mistake of just shopping and buying and fighting and warring and, and drawing lines in the sand and having wars about those lines and developing all better, extraordinary ways of elaborately ways of killing each other and then all standing in church weeping as if it's been a terrible, you know, yeah. terribly sad. If it makes you feel so sad, then stop behaving that way. Like I have a real problem. I'm going to stop ranting in a minute. I have a real problem with the commemoration industry because it seems to me that if you genuinely cared enough to decor yourself out in red flowers and and all this about what war meant what the industrialized slaughter of human beings has meant in the 20th century and forever then you would commit yourself to the projects of peace because there can be no other response to it mm. never again will we do this to one another and yet most people who buy into the commemoration industry 
are also fervently keen on bombing the living shit out of anyone over there who mm. you know and I, and I, those two I cannot reconcile that the mm. stupidity of that and 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 it to me it's, it can be probably traced back to two of the biggest lies one is human superiority in nature so we just eat and pillage and 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 destroy in order for our own survival and maybe that's wired into us and the other is white supremacy so like I, I, I genuinely think that the idea that some human beings are superior to another set of human beings allows all sorts of sins mm-hmm. in its wake yeah. and one of them is and one of them is this hypocrisy about war so my you know that's why I write about children in that way because they seem to have a great deal of clarity yeah um, and they and they more, you know the way that children just understand death you know like a lot of people pad around children saying that Darling, it's a dead, it's a dead hedgehog. It's, it's gone. It's left us. It's like, you know, and children are like, okay, yeah, I get it. <laughs> Shut up. It's been run over. It's cool. It's dead. Um, and I think that so coupled with that kind of emotional clarity about death, unfussiness about yeah. the language of goneness, gone. You know, like my, my son the other day got upset. He's like, I don't want to become a skeleton. He was going on and on about how he didn't want his flesh to come off and become a skeleton. You know, he'd seen something on Scooby-Doo or whatever. And once I explained to him that he wouldn't have to, because he'd be dead, he wouldn't be able to feel that, he was totally fine. He was like, oh, right, God, I thought yeah. I'd go through it. And I was like, no, what happened long? You won't even have a brain. You won't even understand it anymore because you'll just be gone. He was like, oh, okay, phew. Mm. And I didn't want to use the language of the afterlife or anything. It felt completely, it felt not only counterproductive, but also a little bit of a cheat in the immediacy of the task in front of me. You know, you know the classic parenting with must answer the question you've been asked. My wife's really good at it. It's like, what's sex? She's like, when a man and woman do, you know. And I'm like, it's also called lovemaking. No, 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 no. Just the question you've been asked. Yeah. But I felt that in answering just that question about what it would actually feel like to slough off his skin and become a skeleton, I'd actually had a frank and probably quite productive and decent discussion with a person about death. Yeah. Not, and I hadn't needed to borrow any men in the sky with beards or I hadn't needed to mention the soul and you know mm. anything like that. No ideas of perseverance and longevity. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, one of the things I've, I've come back around to with both books is, um, is that kindness is truth. Yeah. And that... And that, and that I want to be as honest as I possibly can in my writing and that boils right down to the sentence level. I want to clear out all the clutter. You yeah. Know, like I go back closer to poetry, which is the, on, the most honest form. Yeah. Um, and that is probably why it probably comes from, from mourning. Mm. Yeah. It's um, I, I, I love that conversation you had with your son. Well, and that weirdly, that's an idea I've been engaging with recently because I've been reading a lot around this subject and there's a great book in, a great um, bit in Darren Brown's book Happy, which has this section on death, and he just explains exactly what you said. Very sort of um, very simple terms explanation of what it would mean to be to not exist, and I, I did feel a little weight, Ready. a little weight, <laughs> a little weight that, that I hadn't realised was there, yeah. kind of lift. You yeah. know, it, I think it's for me. For me, it's that's what's so great about talking about these things we don't talk about because. Uh, I think everyone must think about them on some level, you know. I, I, I um, culturally, it's difficult, you know. I, I've I tried to have a conversation with someone in my life recently about this subject, and they were, you know, I was a bit nervous about doing it, and they were they were quite upset that I'd raised it, and um, it was you know it was made clear this isn't something I want to talk yeah. about, yeah. and and I, I had a sort of crisis of confidence at that point about this whole project, thinking ah. Oh, is this something? Am I being mm-hmm. ridiculously arrogant to think that this is something we should be talking about? Perhaps it's yeah. perhaps we 
bury it for a reason, you know. And but I I find the flip side of that is things that you've said, things that everyone I've spoken to about it. Just you know, for example, there's the the Catherine Mannix book. Yeah. I don't know if you know that book, but um, I haven't read it. But um, I'm reading a similar book now. Yeah, I'm reading a book by Rachel Clark called Dear Life, and okay. she's also a palliative. Care okay, writer. so it's probably similar subjects, but there's just just one little fact in that book is um, she just describes the end of life and the death rattle that people get, which is a noisy sort of rattling sound in the throat. And I, along with I think most people I might have spoken to or heard about this in the past, assumed that was a kind of difficult stage of intense discomfort. And what the what she says actually, no, that's a that's a sign that the person is so deeply unconscious that they can't. They're definitely not suffering anymore. And that to me is just a you know what, I might be in a room with someone I care about deeply at some yeah. point, and that little tiny bit of factual information I think is so useful. I uh, think one of the problems is that people think, have a perceived, or there is a perceived idea of a pr- a proper, mm. a properness still around death. So, for example, someone yesterday after Kobe Bryant died had tweeted saying, uh, amazing man, amazing sports player, family, you know, grief, terrible you know and love to his family etc etc but he was also a sex offender and let's not forget that and lots of people are like now's not the time mm. and and i've had an interesting conversation with my wife because she was like well, and, and that's right because that's just a, that's just a respect thing and i was saying but this idea of time when when is right like when is the right time to 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 tell someone you love them is it after they've gone or when they're dying or would, would now be a decent start you know when is the right like i think we have because for various inherited ritualistic reasons because death has been a, you know, a, a, a part of uh, has been kind of ornamented and, and addressed and thought about and rehearsed in many different ways in many different cultures. So we've become, we've inherited a sort of an uncertainty as to how it should be discussed. I'm often accused of being morbid or uncaring or having a, such a strong death drive that I've forgotten that most people don't. Mm. And I and I and I I recognise that. Like I'm quite a sort of myth of Sisyphus type quite looking forward to dying <laughs> not in a hurry and I hope it's okay but I, I certainly it's I don't lie wake you know, I, but I would but that is probably a symptom of me having been relatively obsessed with it and interested in books about it and music about you know I, I find these things attractive and interesting I'm not someone that fetishizes longevity in the way that some mm. people do I'm not like going running every day with my heart meter on because I really desperately want to be able to run a half marathon when I'm 70 I fully expect not to be able to but I I, I recognize that in that there is people will say I don't I, that's the, there's a there's a lack of kindness there because we wish to continue to be wrapped. I mean I've had people come up to me after book reading saying everything you said I disagree with. I okay. want to be given a hallmark card saying he's in a better place. He's with his maker. I want to be wrapped up in cotton wool about mm. this. I want to buy into these ideas of of you know um, the soul's journey. You know it's totally fine. Like uh, but I I, I recognise that I've sort of hard yeah as I said at the beginning I've sort of hardened myself against that because I've I've kind of I guess I've become a bit more anthropological I've started to look at it more as how does a how does a set of people in a set of economic circumstances handle the the pure practical situation that a lot of them you know that everyone's going to die and a lot of them are going to die in this way like yeah. for example an aging population like I'm quite interested in it from a sort of scientific point mm, of view a bit yeah. like dead pop tooth what like if you zoom out 2,000 years so yeah I would much rather read what you're saying Darren Brown or, or even you know Catherine Mannix's book or I, I mean or this book I'm reading by Rachel Clark like because she what she's describing is this extraordinary opportunity not for it to be an inconvenient and horrible and grim 
and kind of prop heavy like in my piece you know endless bits of detritus lying around mm. um, and, and but actually turn it more into an extraordinary opportunity to send people off yeah with with grace and energy and good feelings surrounding them you know yeah um and that 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 for me the kind of wailing shrieking banging roaring type thing it that crow speaks of in that first book um is somehow more akin to that than it is to everyone gathered around sniffling mm. you know I, I i hated funerals as a kid and i think i'm pre- I'm, I'm maybe still quite anti-funeral mm. they feel like fake rituals to me not the real thing I think if we really felt then we'd be up in the hills roaring or, yeah. or you know firing bows and arrows into the lake or something like that, that well that, that's an interesting point because one of them um, one of the well the only question really that we're, we're, we're making sure we ask everybody uh, really inspired by the fact that there's a sort of confusing thing going on in our culture that uh, on the one hand, I, you know, I went to, to see um, a, some big blockbuster film recently. And by the end of that film, like hundreds of bad guys had been dispatched, you know, quite often with a, a little witty quip. It was death was everywhere in that film. But in terms of real conversations or rituals that it. can... Yeah, the bit with the tank. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. Um, um, in terms of real conversations and really talking about it in an open yeah. way, there's very little going on. And you know, what what do you think our culture does well? In you know what is if anything, what does well your culture? However, you would you know interpret that. What does your culture do well in relation to death? What could be done better? Well, my my culture, if I if I take that to mean my culture in the community I'm in of writers and poets, I think mm. we're the best in the business. Yeah, maybe apart from songwriters and musicians, you know, we are the people that are trying to get this dub, this lovely warm feeling we all get. Uh, we're trying to get this into our everyday life anyway because we're committed to it. We think it's the, we think it's the good stuff. Yeah, and we think it's the lifeblood. I, I guess we fundament we fundamentally disagree that you should only go to the lifeblood once or twice a year when someone dies mm. or a wedding like that's when most people go to poetry and i'm saying you can have that every day it's all yours you can have it translated from the from the farsi you can have it sprayed on your wall you can have it tattooed on your body it's there it's it, you can enrich your life in this way every day you can love people every day to the point of tears mm. without them having to die first yeah. so i guess i guess some of us are committed to that project i think we are um in a, in a place at the moment, because of the, the the threats faced by the NHS, we are in a point where, for various activist reasons, but also for various like real politic reasons, people are praising the work of nurses and and doctors and surgeons and and carers. Partly because we suddenly realise we need them. Partly because we're about to boot most of them out because they haven't got you know settled UK citizenship. And partly because we're going to have this huge generation of old people that again we're suddenly thinking who who does the caring who does the dirty job of scooping up shit and vomit and 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 changing our bedclothes when we need it and like we can have we can fly to mars and we can have like you know fantastic chlorinated chicken coming from america whatever it is we reckon we're going to do but if we aren't if we aren't able human to human to make our our last moments on this earth at least comfortable then what has our what has our fantastic economic superiority and moral learning and fan- best universities in the world what's it all come to mm. if we can't just look after each other so in this kind of save the nhs movement um i see a lot of really quite progressive um thinking about death and dying a lot yeah. more than i do and i any pe- people like Catherine mannix and 
Rachel Clark and Henry Marsh and um, Atul Gawande and you know there's all you know in the same way as we've had a kind of boom for nature writing we've had a boom for medical writing I think one of the things it has done is made us really really grateful for healthcare professionals yeah yeah because um, you can cruise along your whole life just taking and taking and taking not thinking until you are being cared for what the idea of care is and mm. I think actually care the idea of care for all sorts of reasons from for, for, I mean, a little bit we were talking on the bus about feminism and, and what we expect you know care in the home to mean and, and the raising of children but also caring for the most vulnerable in our society and how we might have very lofty ideals in one regard I, I think for people like us so we would aim for people like us to get help and attention and be looked after overseas or whatever if they're in trouble but for people like them we treat them. We treat them like prisoners, and we, mm. we have the lowest possible standards of of human rights and and welfare. And and I think the more discussions we have about this, about saying what sort of society are we, and that's yeah. why I think the post election few weeks was actually a period of, I would literally call it mourning for those of us that felt that the primary issues one might vote for would be those things. So we were literally heartbroken. I think, mm. but we're sort of, we should be heartbroken anyway. I mean, I think one has to go around in this world feeling heartbroken all the time. Mm. Because of the way it's happened, the way that the way that life on this earth for human beings has has, has become has had to be. Yeah. Um, so I don't think uh, I don't want to don't want to speak to my invisible friend, but I don't want to put on an uncomfortable suit that I've hired at great expense from Marks and Spencers and travel across this country to stand in a church full of people I didn't much like twenty years ago to pay my respects to someone that's tragically died. Um, in order to feel these feelings, I'm feeling them yeah. in abundance, and, and and I'm trying to put them into my work, and I'm trying to put them into the way I raise my children, or speak to the old lady on my street, or you know, the homeless person on the street, whatever. This is daily work. It yeah. shouldn't be rarefied, ritualistic work. It should be in our lives. Yeah, I like that idea, and I think it comes back to the crow character. It comes back to like a feeling that I'm having sometimes as I'm engaging with different people on this subject, and also. Funnily enough, a similar kind of feeling I've had since my daughter was born um, uh, 20 months ago. And um, it's a kind of, um, it's like a connection to some sort of core part of, I guess, my humanity, which is is intimately connected to the pain in my life, um, but equally connected to the sort of joy in my life. And I think it's, there's this place where I don't go there very often, but when I do, it sort of, encompasses both and it's a quite a calm there's a quite a calm okayness with that mixture and contradiction of life and that I feel that's really valuable and if these does, kind does of com- music take you there, it? it does often yeah it does um yeah I mean that's interesting I hadn't thought of that actually but that's that's absolutely a big part of the reason I make music so because yeah. I when I was on you know out in the world talking about grief is a thing with feathers I very often used to say that, that mourning to me done I don't mean done well as if there's a sliding scale of how you know if it's good or bad or better or worse but I mean done for oneself well with with rigor with with attention in indulged in if you like or or thought of as a thing that you might do stop on a Sunday night think ah my beautiful Welsh grandmother Jane I miss her and I think about her in these contexts and I am grateful for what she gave me and you know do a little bit of mourning as it were yeah you know, recharge one's one's daily self with what has been lost and what might be gained mm. so to do that feels to me ecstatic genuinely flesh alteringly 
gorgeous and worthwhile and 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 revitalizing in precisely the same way that music and and good language do yeah you just triggered a thought there which is that um so 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 i so I, i'm quite a sensitive person on i'm deeply insecure in various ways and um i am um, I, my one of my dangerous places I can go is to a sort of victim kind of mentality, and I think sometimes when you engage with pain on a superficial level, it can become a sort of intellectual intellectualized, and you can go to this kind of victim place because it's a sort of running away from the pain in a way. But perhaps for me at least, when I'm really sort of going into it and feel it as deeply as I can, and I it, I move through into a slightly different place, which I think is that place that you're talking about, in which I've been talking about so well i don't think that doing that work i think the popular idea is that doing that work is somehow indulgent or weak there's a kind of there's a kind of hyper masculine uh there's almost a whiff of misogyny about it sometimes that to do that kind of as it were emotional hard labor is Mm. is indulgent because you're not because you're not at work you're not making anything or there's no product from that which you can sell back into the industry of being human like that and and that to me is a real misunderstanding but b be quite toxic quite dangerous um but also it suggests also that while you're doing that you're not doing anything useful uh, or, or that you're doing, or you're failing to do something during that time, which would be more immediately of use to those around you. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it affected, like it relates in linguistically even to weakness. And I just don't think that is true. I think you can you can be ecstatic in your morning or find time in your life where these things are revelatory and interesting, um, and, and you can, as it were, uh, address them and feel about understand what your pain is in relation to the pain of others. Um, whilst also being being busy, like you can, you you don't need to, the sentimentality isn't connected to it. I don't think. Yeah, you yeah. can be busy while you're doing that. You could even be in a in a in a classroom shouting at children in quite an aggressive and bullying way while you're doing that. Thought. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't think they're in the same. I don't think I don't think they're emotionally tied. And actually, the kind of my feeling always about the idea of sentimentality and nostalgia are the same kind of things. Like they're like a tincture almost to me. They they. Too much of them can be very dangerous and, and, and debilitating sometimes, especially to a culture. It's a bit like I'm saying about the, the commemoration industry. Like you're looking back so much that war is only men in men in World War One hats against a silhouetted background with a poppy. So you're actually you've completely failed to notice that war is happening right next to where you're standing mm. with a different set of people and a different set of concerns and a different type of weapon. But the death and destruction is as rampant now as it was then. But you so fixated on this kind of cinematic idea of it you know from pitch birth that you've same thing with with sentimentality more like we need to think about the past we need to feel profoundly pained about the loss of those close to us and the loss of those people that we'll never met but not so much so that we can't be there on time to pick up our children from school and do the things that we have to do as citizens of the world you yeah, know? yeah the two things i think can co- like so you want a little bit of it but not so much you have to be responsible in your daily dosing of yourself with these mm. things i think yeah. and one of the things about a project you're doing where you're surrounded i guess i felt after the three years talking about that book when it becomes your primary subject of interest you risk you risk elevating it do you know what i mean you risk you risk making it more abstract or more kind of philosophically uh, rounded around the edges than it actually is which is why I try and charge these books full of the kind of clumsiness and vulgarity and sometimes even like scatological reality of, of life in the body yeah because it can become all quite notional 
yeah, well, texty. I, I, and I, I'm always like, people shit themselves. Yeah. You know, people bleed out of surprising places on their face. Like, there's an incredible smell around. That. You know, I want, I want to be reminded that we are, which is, this is a bodily thing we're all talking about. So the language should, wherever possible, as Crow says, be dragged back down to, you know, like I was talking the other day, this long program about rhinos. I was just saying this on the bus, about the hunting of rhinos, and illegal trading. I was like, is someone just going to point out that what we're talking about here is a b- bunch of people stupid enough, for whatever reasons, and I don't, you know, you have to be culturally sensitive to everyone, you respect everyone, but for whatever complex cultural reasons, there's a bunch of people that think that ground up rhinos is going to make their dicks go stiff. And that is a ludicrous reason to make a whole species of very special animal extinct. Mm. And if no one else is going to say it, then I'm going to say it. That's just mad. Mm. Like, and, and so, like, in the kind of, and, and because we're so, we're so concerned with readying ourselves to grieve for the rhinos in an appropriate way because we've lost, you know, species loss, we've forgotten to be raging against the sheer folly of humankind that would get us to this point. Yeah. So I want the, in my books that there will always be a crow character who'll always be like, hello, <laughs> like at the funeral, you know, you hated her, or whatever it is. Just the short, the belch of the bodily in the real. Yeah, you know. and I think that's what we need, you know, like you say, for you, obviously, you've been immersed in this for three years. It's, and perhaps, you know, you, you're concerned, maybe it's, for you personally, it's, it's, it's a bit too much. But for, for us, and for many people, it's like a much needed shot of this realness in our lives that perhaps we're not getting. And so... You know, I've it's been very valuable for me, and it's set set us off on a in, really interesting journey. So, yeah, I just want to say thank you, and um, and thanks for being part of this project. You know, it's very it's very special for us. So, Max Pleasure. Porter, thank, thank you very you. much. Cheers. <laughs> Hello, I'm Mike Lindsay. I am the co-founder of Tongue. For me, I found it quite difficult. Um, to engage entirely with the with the concept, um, because I am one of those people that, that does find it uncomfortable to talk about death and, and dying. Um, perhaps because I haven't really experienced much of it, so I feel a bit of a, a charlatan in, in, in that sense within within this concept, um, within this record as well. But then I realised, well, I have had experience, you know, with with. Um, people at the end of their lives dying and aunties and uncles and grandparents and things like that um, which is a, a beautiful thing um, and my parents are approaching an age where where we do need to ha- have a conversation about um, what they want and how how they want to deal with it at the moment I think they just want to live as lo- much life as possible um, constant holidays seems to be the thing um, and that's great. And that actually makes me feel more alive knowing that by confronting the end of our lives, knowing that, that every single day it could be, could be your last, it's, it's certainly a way of trying to make each moment count. But that can be quite a daunting thing as well. I, don't, I haven't suffered really any grief personally. Um, Obviously, I have a lot of empathy that those to, with, with those who have, um, but I guess it's a really good thing to open up your your fears. And even though you haven't experienced this yet, and perhaps are trying to put it to one side, um, I think for me, I'm going to have a, a conversation with my 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 mum and dad, and and try and uh, play them this record, play them these podcasts, and sit them down and 
and see how they feel about having a conversation with me, their son, about the end of their their days. I'm pretty pretty sure my dad's quite happy to uh, um, tell someone to uh, pull the plug as soon as it gets difficult. He's seen his brother and his sister go through some some nasty moments at the end of their life, and I think his thing is let's end it while we're high, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so I've been thinking about that that kind of end of life process and reading the Atul Gwandi book um, being mortal through, through this process um, whilst mixing this record and trying to really bring the positive spin on that and really try and build into the music and the mixes a feeling of, of, of life and of hope um, whilst dealing with death and dying. Um, Sam has written a fair few murder ballads in his time, so we're no stranger to to that side of the topic. But th- this really is about opening up the conversation as a whole. Um, so I might be like a lot of other people out there that find it a, a difficult thing to, to talk about, but I've got better at it. And I've been talking about this record to quite a lot of people and getting their opinions. And every time I bring up the topic someone has something they really want to talk about and really want to delve into whether it be their own personal uh, grief or or something that may be happening to them themselves um, but uh, or just a story you know about their grandparents or something like that but everyone has something to say it's 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 it happens to everything in the world and everybody in the world um, so I found it I found it pretty pretty cathartic already just telling people about the topic and the album um, and uh, and I think pulling all those sounds together with with this topic in mind has really helped me draw inspiration um, musically Well, thanks everyone for listening to the first episode of the Dead Club podcast. Um, Coming up in the series, we've got interviews with Dame Sue Black, Darren Brown, Kevin Young, AC Grayling, Catherine Mannix, Alain de Botton and Speech de Bell. Please do subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 